Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Hear the word of the Lord. 
this week, for those who've not been here each day, we've looked at three consecutive passages in Matthew 26 and 27. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, the Jews didn't like him, that's for sure. But then most people don't like a foreign ruler over them. King George I was not very popular. Lord Curzon in India and Pontius Pilate hated and despised by the Jews. And it wasn't just, though, that he was a Roman over them. He ruled for 10 years as the procurator, but he had no sympathy for Jews. At times he was harsh, cruel, corrupt. He liked the flags with the emperors around in Jerusalem. He massacred peaceful crowds, raided the temple treasury, He made many diplomatic mistakes. He'd probably be elected to government these days. I guess he was appointed because his wife was well-connected, but he was eventually recalled in disgrace a few years after Jesus' death. Admittedly, Pilate was in a difficult position. He's reporting to Tiberius, answerable to him, and on one hand also trying to keep the Jews at least mildly happy two competing interests, trying not to be too harsh, not to be too lenient, trying to balance the praise of Caesar and the praise of the Jewish population. But he was weak. He's a bit like a dead fish floating with the tide, seeing which way it goes. The issue for the Jews about Jesus was that he was blasphemous, claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. For the Romans, the issue, that that didn't concern them particularly. For the Romans, it was treason, a threat to Caesar, the fact that he was called a king in competition, perhaps, to Caesar. So the governor Pilate asked, when Jesus was brought to him, are you the king of the Jews? That is, are you a threat to Caesar? Is this a treasonable offence that you are being brought to me for? And as so often in the trial and leading up to Jesus' death, there is the ironic truth on the lips of others. He is the king of the Jews and he will die under that heading, put there by Pilate himself a short time later. Jesus' reply is typical. We've already seen examples of this in the last day or two. Jesus says, you have said so. Not denying it, implicitly affirming it, but not quite as unambiguous as we might expect. Yes, I am, but not in the way that you expect. That's the sort of little evasiveness of Jesus' answer that we've already seen to the Jewish leaders as well. The chief priests and the elders are there and they keep on accusing Jesus. It's not just once, but ongoing in verse 12. And Pilate asked him again, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? Although we're not told here the accusation. And the the narrative doesn't highlight that because there is no substantial 
accusation against Jesus that carries any weight at all, of course. But don't you hear what they're saying? Why aren't you defending yourself is implicit in Pilate's uh, question back to Jesus. He doesn't understand the silence. He sees that this is a trumped-up charge, but he expects Jesus to defend himself. And yet Jesus remains so silent, as he's been so far, of course. Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Silence because there's nothing to answer. Silence to fulfill the prophecy of the suffering servant of Isaiah. Now we know that there are plenty of people who misjudge democracy. Perhaps the best and most glaring stupid example in recent years is David Cameron, who misjudged the democracy of Britain and ended up throwing them into Brexit, which he didn't expect. Mr. Trump doesn't quite seem to get democracy sometimes either. But Pilate misjudges it here as well. He chooses a well-known insurrectionist, Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, ironically, son of the father, Barabbas. Maybe there's a deliberate irony going on here, which Jesus, which son of which father. But he chooses this man as an alternative. We don't know the origin of the custom of releasing somebody at this festival. That seems peculiar, and apparently there's no other evidence, I believe, uh, elsewhere about this. But nonetheless, it seems that uh, Pilate is trying to pick somebody who nobody would want to try and use this angle, thinking these people, they'll never want Barabbas. I mean, he's a bad guy. He's well known to be a bad guy. But, of course, he misjudges the democracy. He misjudges the voice of the people. Crowd, which one do you want me, uh, he says to the crowd, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For Pilate knows this is out of self-interest or envy. He knows there's no real charge against Jesus here, but he misjudges them. But then the narrative just pauses for a minute. Mrs. Pilate has a dream. And the implication is the dreams from God. Back in Matthew 2, there's the dream to Joseph, for example. And not every dream, of course, comes from God. I was just telling Reese beforehand, I was dreaming the other night, somehow just anticipating being here this week, and I was envisaging the old chapel, which has been gone for more than a decade, I think. And, uh, well, that wasn't a dream from God, I'm sure. Um, who knows what that was about. But now Mrs. Pilate sends a message implicitly interrupting this trial for a, a, a minute or two. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now we don't know the detail of her suffering or the detail of the dream, but it's strong enough and important enough for her to send a message to her husband that this Jesus is innocent. And that thread keeps recurring through the narrative of Jesus' trial. Of course, it's all the way through the gospel. We know that Jesus is innocent. But Matthew doesn't want us to get confused here that this Jesus is being put to death for some legitimate reason. 
He is innocent. And even Mrs. Pilate sees that. Judas saw it. We saw that yesterday. There is no sustainable charge against this Jesus. This is shonky justice. In effect, it's mob rule. Well, the Jewish leaders are more influential, of course, than Pilate over the crowd. And the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. And that just shows how desperate they are and how dark they are in their thinking, that they're wanting this notorious, bad, well-known, insurrectionist rebel. We don't know what he's actually done. But Pilate is picking the worst in order to save Jesus. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. And Pilate gets more desperate. Well, what shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? He may be trying to needle the Jews by saying Jesus called the Messiah because he knows that they'll be offended by that. But I suspect in the context here, he's not trying to needle them. He's trying to say, How, what are you going to do with this man? Why should he be put to death? But they all answered and now they escalated. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate now expresses his full exasperation and desperation. Why? What crime has he committed? So even Pilate recognises this is trumped up. Pilate recognises there is innocence here. This is false justice. But he's weak in the face of this crowd. <coughs> crime has he committed? None is really mentioned. And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. That is, they don't give an answer. What crime? Just crucify him. Pilate's tactic of bringing in Barabbas as an alternative has backfired badly. His trump card has been beaten. When you go to the old city of Jerusalem, you need to know how to haggle, to bargain the price. I've bargained things down there from, my memory is 70 shekels down to three once. I thought I was pretty good, and I was determined to not give ground on that matter many years ago now. But every move that Pilate makes here, every attempt to sort of almost bargain with about Jesus is countered and thwarted. And like Judas, whom we saw yesterday, Pilate abrogates responsibility, famously washing his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. I am innocent? But who is innocent? Not Pilate. Not Judas, not the Jewish leaders, nor the crowd, but Jesus alone. Pilate, in his weakness, is as guilty as hell. And the people, his blood is on us and our children. Terrible thing to say. But they're so desperate to get rid of Jesus, maybe hyped up by the Jewish leaders who are so anti-Jesus, they're blind to what is truth and justice. 
his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And he flogged Jesus. But why? Why flog him when you think he's innocent and he's done no wrong? You might be capitulating to the Jewish leaders, but why not just hand him over? But he flogs him. For it's not just the Jewish leaders upon whom the blood of Jesus rests. It's the Roman leaders too, the Jews and Gentiles leaders and people. The blood of Jesus is on all. He had him flogged. Painful, excruciating, we know. Lashes with bone or lead or both. Often fatal to be flogged like this. He hands him over, a pathetically weak leader. Christian hymns often make a lot about the suffering, the pain, the agony of Jesus in the lead-up and including his death. How much pain he bore, how much suffering he bore. But the Bible makes none of that. There's no description here of the flogging. We might picture it from, you know, the Mel Gibson film or something like that. And we might be aghast as we think about how painful and the back tearing apart, but there's nothing of that pain here or anywhere really in Scripture. He was scourged or flogged and handed over. That's all. And later when it gets to the story of the crucifixion, whether this gospel or any of the others, there's no description of the pain, the suffering, the agony of hanging on a cross, gasping for breath before finally you asphyxiate. They crucified him. Because what matters in the end is not his pain, but his death. We're saved by his death, not the amount of pain and suffering. And Barabbas, guilty Barabbas, is set free. A poignant glimpse, I think, ironically, of what Jesus' death is accomplishing. And I suspect it's deliberately put that way and deliberately happened that way so that we get the glimpse of here is a man who is guilty of insurrection, whatever he did, but he walks free as Jesus suffers instead. A suggestion of what the benefit of Jesus' death is, not just for Barabbas, but of course for us. Pilate's soldiers took Jesus into the Praetorium, perhaps the Antonia Fortress, maybe at Herod's Palace, and the whole company, cohort literally, of soldiers, 600 that would imply apparently. I mean, how excessive is that? And they mock him. A scarlet robe, not quite royalty. A crown of thorns, not quite a king. A reed as a scepter, not quite a ruler. Hail, king of the Jews. Comparison with the Ave Caesar, Hail Caesar, that would be more well known. Mocking Jesus' kingship. He's become an object of ridicule. And he bears it all 
in silence. In the end, it's not Jesus on trial, but the others, the priests, Caiaphas and others, Judas, Pilate, the crowds, Barabbas. And all through it is this little thread of the clear, unambiguous, uncontestable innocence of Jesus beyond dispute. Detail after detail of the trial and the lead-up to it echoes, alludes to, or quotes from the suffering servant passages and their surrounds in the second part of Isaiah. And we know where that leads to. We should know where that leads to. So often our ignorance of Scripture is because we're so ignorant of the Old Testament, we don't see the illusions and the context that's being brought in. But that servant of Isaiah is thoroughly vindicated by God, innocent and vindicated. And so the allusions to that context keep reminding us, the reader, he's innocent and he'll be vindicated. For one day, real justice will be done. On that day, the chief priests and the elders will kneel before Jesus' judgment seat. Who will be stirring up the crowds then? And one day, Pilate will be whimpering weakly before the king of the Jews' throne. Who will be mocking then? And one day, the crowds will be stunned into silence before the Son of Man's glory. For it's not Jesus on trial, it's everyone else. The priests, Caiaphas and others, Judas, Pilate, the crowds, and us. Because we're guilty. We're guilty like them. And we're meant to read this in the light of our own guilt and sin. Here is the king of the Jews on trial before mortals so that one day we may stand without fear before the throne of God. He is scourged so that we may be healed by his stripes. He's condemned so that we may be declared innocent and acquitted. He wore the crown of thorns so that we may wear the crown of glory. He was stripped of his clothes in mockery so that we may be clothed in righteousness. He was mocked, so that we may be honoured. He died, that we might live. Yes, I am guilty too, and I'm on trial. And it's my sins that sent Jesus to the cross. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption, can it be? Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now he's in heaven, exalted high. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. 
ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. And when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Amen.